Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Once upon a time, the South was a solid Democratic block of votes. Many of those segregationist senators that Joe Biden recently talked about were in fact Democrats. Republicans just didn't get elected there. And then things changed. The Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, the trailing impact of demographic change from the Great Migration, and the broader cultural changes, including the rise of feminism, all affected party affiliation. All these things provided an opportunity for Republicans in the South to exploit racial, social, and cultural divides. Today, arguably, we are living with the apogee of that effort. The divisions have been part of every national election since LBJ versus Goldwater in 1964. However, it should be noted that the reason JFK was visiting Dallas in November of 1963 was to shore up flagging Democratic support in the once Democratic bastion of Texas. This long effect, which has led us to where we are today, is the subject of a new book by my guests Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields. Angie Maxwell is the director of the Diane Blair Center of Southern Politics and Society and an associate professor of political science and holder of an endowed professorship in Southern Studies at the University of Arkansas. Todd Shields is the dean of the J. William Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Arkansas, and he is co-author and editor of several books. Together, they are the authors of The Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Voters in the South Changed American Politics. Angie Maxwell, Todd Shields, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Todd, let's start with you. Talk a little bit about what the politics of the South was like pre-1960. Talk a little bit about that. Well, like you had mentioned in the opening, the, you know, the Democratic senators and representatives then were very much in favor of segregation and Jim Crow laws. Um, and, you know, the party of Lincoln, those candidates really didn't have much of a chance in the once solidly Democratic South. And Angie, tell us a little bit about the, the inflection point, the point that that, that started to change. Oh, it's a good question because people cited at different times. I think we started to see some cracks in that, you know, Democratic South as early as 1948 when the Dixie cracks, um, a, you know, several Southerners, uh, state, Southerners break off and kind of hold up a Democratic convention around candidate. And we see a little attention in 1960 um, in that race. But it's really in 1964, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act that summer, that the Republican Party makes a decision um, after a lot of internal fighting to pursue Southern states in their strategy when the electoral map. And then then they go about doing that. And that's kind of the moment things start to start to shift. And Todd, talk a little bit about how that became in 1964 in the run up to Goldwater's getting the nomination and then in the Goldwater campaign the way in which little by little that strategy became more central to the Republican effort. Well, what Goldwater showed with carrying five southern states in that election year, you know, showed that the Deep South would go for a Republican if the candidate would really come out against uh, the Civil Rights Act and those types of progressive movements. But it was it was 1968 uh, when President Nixon was able to kind of um, 
couch that type of rhetoric in a way that that more moderates could follow and to and to go along with. And so you saw rhetoric like law and order and um, restoring things and all deliberate speed and that type of language, which Southerners very much heard. And if you contrast like 1968's campaign messaging in the South from Nixon to his 1960 um, rhetoric in, in the South, you see a dramatic change and you see him definitely trying to reach out to Southern Democrats on a racial basis. And it really was couched, as you say, Todd, in, in all of these kind of code words, law and order being certainly a big part of it. But really, they Nixon went to school of what Goldwater accomplished in a much less elegant way back in 1964. Absolutely. Um, just that he absolutely did, um, you know, adapt it. I mean, they had they had done a lot of surveys and focus groups. And in 1968, uh, Republican National Convention, they was a really big argument about which way they should go. And the Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party wanted to stay pro-civil rights, pro-urban politics, and the party of Lincoln. Um, the Nixon campaign with several folks showed up with a lot of data. And at that time, that was brand new. But they had a lot of evidence and they had seen what had happened in with Goldwater. Um, they carried the day and then they did take a very nuanced approach. Um, they also had a lot of ideas and coaching um, from Senator Strong Thurman, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you- and they also had Wallace to pivot off of in 68. So they knew George Wallace was going to get the hardliners. So even if they had followed Goldwater's exact kind of Operation Dixie, they already had a Southerner that was doing that. So in order to hit that eight spot um, between the Democrats and between Wallace, Nixon, you know, kind of pivoted the waters and kind of, and, you know, reached to the moderates. Talk about the way, both of you, Angie, start with you, talk about the way in which, particularly in the Goldwater campaign, in his effort to get the nomination and then in the campaign, the way in which conservatism at the time became conflated with the race issue. Oh, yeah. Well, some of it's happened. I mean, you know, Goldwater is very influenced by a book that, you know, Phyllis Schlafly writes called An Echo, You Know, Not a Choice. Schlafly is criticizing Republicans for being, you know, Democrat light, as she would, you know, kind of phrase it. They really need to set up a clear, polarized choice. Um, and and people really thought that was, you know, a our kind of new way to go, especially when they saw it in someone like Wallace. I mean, Wallace is known for that kind of polarization, right? So what's what's so kind of sad in a way about this particular moment is that the Democrats and the Republicans almost match on their platforms in terms of civil rights. And then you've got they have different ideas to go about some things. But when Goldwater wins that nomination, he takes that advice and says, we're going to be stark. It's going to be a stark choice, right? And whatever Goldwater's own beliefs were, and there's a lot of debate about that, mm-hmm. the message was overt in the South. There, the overt. It was absolutely championed that this is he had voted against this civil rights. That Strom, you know, Strom Thurmond converts from Democrat to uh, Republican and goes on the stump with Goldwater. 
So much so. I mean, this is how clear the message was. In 1964, Goldwater, 87% of the Mississippi. Mississippi, been Democrats since we've been voting. <laughs> Democrats in the war, right? 87%. It was not, it was not, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't coded in any way, right? That, that's how powerful it was. To what extent was this Goldwater who understood this, or or who in the Goldwater circle? Was it Cliff White? Was it others that really were the architect of this? Well, Goldwater is actually the one after nineteen six after the nineteen sixty loss to Kennedy. You know, when Republicans came so close with Nixon, Goldwater is the one that says that starts to see the writing on the wall that the. The Republicans are not going to win African-American voters. They're starting, he's starting to say, we're not doing well with African-American voters. Kennedy is going to lock them down. So he, Goldwater does start to see that. Now, then the strategy in terms of appealing to, you know, Southern whites, like how you're going to go, let's go get the other side of the coin, so to speak, in this fight, you know, there's a lot of people involved. There's Schlafly in an intellectual argument about polarization. There's also some some of Strom Thurmond's folks, including, you know, Harry Dent and other mm-hmm. people working Southern side of things, trying to Republican Party were up for grabs, right? And then you lots of disagreement in Goldwater's camp. And so it's hard to pinpoint the who who is the most responsible, you know, kind of for the choice. I mean, I think when Goldwater does that final swing through the set that final campaign, and, and he, he does an event um, in South Carolina on Halloween um, day and broadcast um, about nine other southern states that are all seeing this one Goldwater rally, an event. And there he is, you know, Thurman is there. He is used as the man who voted against the Civil Rights Act. And it wasn't something he objected to uh, at that time. Talk about the way, Todd, in, even after Goldwater's stunning defeat, the way in which Nixon realized what the opportunities were here. Well, you definitely saw states like like Angie was saying that Mississippi, you know, was willing to support Goldwater so heavily and so thoroughly that they definitely saw um, maybe there's cracks in that solid Democratic South and they wanted to know how to reach them. And, and I'll go back to the amount of research and data that they had collected to find out, you know, what, what issues can we say that, you know, a voter in Tennessee or in Arkansas is going to say, you know what, I am going to vote Republican. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to stay with my Democratic Party. Uh, they might at the local level, but at the national level, they would start voting Republican. Um, and so Nixon did have a very nuanced approach there, but he had a very Uh, If you look through his files in his library that have um, reams and reams of data on Southern attitudes and Southern beliefs and lots of highlights about, like, here's where we are. They are at odds with their National Democratic Party. If we're going to play on that, now's the time to play on it in 68. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the ways in which it went beyond the race issue. One of the things Nixon was successful yeah. at, and, and Andrew, you can address this, is moving beyond race to, to really incorporate broader cultural changes at the time. Yeah, well, this, this is kind of the argument we're trying to make in the whole book, and what we call it kind of the long Southern strategy goes well beyond Nixon, too. You know, 
Nixon talks about the fact that he doesn't just want to win the South. He wants to flip the South. He, he, he wants it to be as solidly Republican as it once was Democrat. So, you know, that was kind of the view. But what we also forget is that the South goes right back to Jimmy Carter in 76. I mean, there's like a two to one return to the Democratic Party. And so by that period of time, the Republicans have only gotten about 30 percent of Southerners that are identifying as, you know, as Republicans, right? They haven't converged, converted like a third. And so they have to find another issue. Um, they're going to they're gonna transform the racial appeal. They're going to keep evolving it um, to kind of fit the moment, um, which we still see on. But they're all going to take a position on the Equal Amendment, their first course on the Equal Amendment. The Republican Party has, um, you know, long championed it. Um, Republican feminists were um, a huge part of the movement, if not equal part of the movement. Um, at the 1977 National Women's Convention, which is, um, was the conference that was really, you know, called to push for ratification, you've got first ladies from both parties. Um, both at that time, you know, former first lady Betty Ford, and then you've also got current at that time current first lady Rosalind Carter, both there, both give keynote addresses. Uh, but at the same time, here again, Phyllis Schlafly starts organizing an anti-feminist group um, called Stop ERA, and she has a ton of white Southern uh, women who support that organization, and they start uh, they call their own counter rally. Um, also in Houston, 20 people show up and their family value. And the OP really takes notice. And again, they do a whole lot of polling and uh, like 40,000 American women. And they realize that, you know, white women in the South overwhelmingly supported maintaining those traditional gender roles. They didn't like feminism the way they understood via philosophy, which is a real sorted. Um, and so in night the Republican party drops the ERA from its platform and they're going to do similar things all the way at these forks in the road, trying to court those Southern white voters. They're going to extend it well beyond just race. And of course, the other thing, Todd, that enters into it is the whole religious right that begins to, to emerge at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just like Angie said, you know, Jimmy Carter's election uh, signifies to the GOP that they haven't locked up the South. And then uh, Bill Clinton's election reminds them again. And then pivoting off of Jimmy Carter, they say, well, who, what groups are we missing? We're missing Southern women. And they have a lot in common with what we want to do if we choose to go that way. And then following uh, Bill Clinton, they realized that they had really lost a lot of the Southern Baptist or the Christian more fundamentalist. And the Southern Baptist Convention had gone through a very uh, dramatic theological and political change. Um, and so by the time it was late 1990s, um, they were starting to change from a politically active group that was looking for people who would agree with them theologically to a group that has become very political and we will support whomever will stand up for us. Whatever you believe privately is up to you, but if you will fight for us, then we've got your back. One of the questions, it seems, Todd, is is the chicken or the egg question, whether these changes were driving the politics 
or whether the manipulation of the politics were further exacerbating and driving the cultural change. Talk about what you see in that regard. Well, I would, I would love to hear what Angie thinks about this too, but my, yeah, I, my first reaction is that it's both the, you know, the, the, the racial divisions and then the, you know, the gender divisions and the traditional gender roles, and then the emerging theology that uh, a Southern Baptist to be a good Southern Baptist, to be a good Christian in the South, you need to be politically active. All of those things were happening, but then when the GOP decides to campaign on those issues to use those wedges to to try to flip people to the south then of course those differences are exacerbated and then you see people sorting themselves into the right party over time in terms of uh, maybe i was traditionally democratic uh, affiliate and then my parents were but now i'm shifting to a party that represents where i'm standing on these social issues were also turned into a crisis they were exa- they were they were not only just kind of exaggerated the differences but they were turned into threatening crises, war on Christians, you know, feminists are going to make you put your babies in government daycare. That part of it, you know, you know, really has an effect on people. Talk a little bit about the continued point at which it really became a solid South, the, the point at which the inflection point at which it could be counted on to be totally Republican. Yeah, well, in terms of the presidency at the top of the ticket. It's really not till till George W. It's really not. And even though Reagan has, you know, kind of big landslides, um, you know, we still see competition um, until you get towards, you get kind of all three of those components being hit together, right? The white racial anxieties, kind of traditional gender roles, and then, and then you know, evangelical religion. Um, when you get all three, um, really starts to solidify the South. At the state levels, it varies a little bit. You know, Arkansas doesn't flip Republican until 2014 at the state legislature, le- legislature level, right? So it t- takes longer than kind of people think, and there was a lot more back and forth. Um, and so we want kind of people to see that longer arc because it helps explain a lot of our political reality now. On a local level, Angie, talk about the impact of, of gerrymandering in, in terms of local mm-hmm. districts, both legislative districts and congressional districts, and how that further fueled what we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And this is fascinating because, you know, we're, we might find more out about this is now that we have the kind of some of the files from the Republican strategists who passed away, you know, recently and kind of what they were thinking um, when they did this. Um, you know, that the at the heart of the modern efforts to gerrymander these Southern districts was finding a way to get around the language in the Voting Rights Act. So you try to make whatever you're doing not look like what you're doing. One way to do that is to create those minority majority districts, right? then it looks like your gerrymandering is actually going to create some minority representation in Congress. But what it also does is it makes all the other districts in the state much more white. And so that helped Republicans massively pick up seats in 1994 and then again in the 2000s. That has helped. And in fact, it's what ends up helping you get the most extreme kind of uh, Republican, the strongest Republican, even in some cases, a Tea Party Republican, 
right, in those districts because you have drawn them in a way where you have a majority of minority voters in one district, and then you have all of these other districts that are increasingly majority white. And yet, by increasing minority representation in Congress, how then can it be called racially motivated, right? Or concentrating those Southern white voters in districts so they can pick up more. And one of the things that that we watched in all of this, and I alluded to it before in terms of the way that conservatism and and racial issues became conflated, is that traditional republicanism has been completely drained out of the process. It has become all about these religious, social, and cultural issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, the part, I mean, the, Repub- the Republican Party doesn't just go court Southern white voters. They, the party became Southern. It nationalized, honestly, the bad parts of Southern white identity, because there's some good parts of Southernness too, of course, but it, it really nationalizes those, and it takes the party there. And that can appeal to people outside of the South and does. It's just that the concentration of people who share those attitudes is denser, in those states they were trying to win for an electoral map. Um, and um, like like Todd said, American people have sorted themselves over time. So it's not necessarily that you have more people who would say, you know, express as we measure it, modern sexism. It's that they've shifted more towards one party. And so in that party, the folks who don't feel that way, which is a lot of people, you know, they've lost control of the party. They've lost control. They're they're outnumbered, but they absolutely exist. We just you just don't hear it anymore because the messaging and stuff is geared towards the majority of the party. Is it fair to say that given how long this process has taken, as you talk about it, the long Southern strategy, that that it's reasonable to assume that none of this is going to change rapidly, that even if there is change, there's no reason to think it isn't going to take as long to change it back as it did to get where we are today. Todd, start with you. Well, I think that's exactly right, um, at least for the foreseeable near future. The thing that I think that could make a big change would be if the demographic um, compositions of the southern states continue to grow in, uh, with African Americans moving back, with um, Hispanic growth all across the South. I mean, those types of things, those are a new voting blocks. And if they're out there and they are active, then we could see a switch pretty quickly in some of the southern states. But it will it will depend upon, I think, demographic changes and then them being politically active. Well, and if you look at the midterms, if you look at 2018, you know, you know, the headlines are so different if you're in the South or if you're outside the South. So it's a big night. A lot of women, historic night, women elected to the legislature outside of the South. And then your big South races, you know, Beto O'Rourke in Texas is Faith Abrams in Georgia and Andrew Gillum in Florida. None are successful. They came close. They built a huge Democratic infrastructure back. And that's, that's fantastic for the Democrats in terms of competing. But it takes a long time. I mean, when, one, when you've had one-party control, I mean, it took the Republicans a long time, like you said, because you have to first build that infrastructure, right? So the states where there's more diversity, mm, South Carolina, this upcoming election, has, a, has the largest African-American, you know, voting population. If it gets organized and there's infrastructure, you know, you can see some shifts there. They have to run people, you know. Um, but it will take, it will take, it will take time. And of course, as we saw with things like 
Vietnam, Nixon's talk about a silent majority, the voting, the the Equal Rights Amendment. There's always outside forces that often enter the equation that really are hard to predict how they're going to play out against this. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with with some of the anomalies inherent in Trump. Well, you know, I would argue that Trump is the culmination of this long Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he plays it perfectly. I don't know if it's I don't know who's I don't know who's orchestrating it. But I remember thinking of all the candidates running, he was hitting it the hardest on white racial anxiety. I mean, he's expanded it. Now it's, um, you know, aimed a lot at immigration, which is, by the way, exactly what the when the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s went nationwide. It was because it started focusing on immigration. It's a much bigger, you know, issue um, outside, you know, in a lot of states beyond just the South. Um, and Trump, you know, I mean, no one could, could, you know, I doubt there's a presence that said, has said worse pu- things publicly about women. And then even though he has no evangelical kind of credentials personally um, that, that we know about, you know, he absolutely entertains those evangelicals. He promised about the Supreme Court. He, he shows up at their things enough. Um, they're his most loyal voting block right now. To what extent, finally, we're just about out of time, but but both of you, Todd, start with you. The way broader economic issues have played a role in this. Well, what's very interesting is that this long Southern strategy is ultimately, and like Angie said, I want to emphasize that it's really a national call. It is a, we're going to shore up this voting block and then switch the South so we have this, which in electoral college standpoints is crucial to have such a voting block. Um, but it's a national appeal to anyone who has these types of angst or fears or worries. Now, they are all very social in the changes of social, they do bleed into um, this attitude of you know, things are getting worse for me. Um, things are things are getting bad. And so even we see people who economic situation may have actually gotten better, um, but they're the most afraid. And they're most afraid because they have these angst that have been played upon during campaigns. Angie, last word on that? Yeah. I, I, well, you know, if there's any if there's any group that has been drawn into a fight that does not serve their economic self-interest. You know, I think of all of the Southern whites who were not slave owners, the poor Southern whites who died for the Confederacy fighting for something that would not benefit them at all, right, because of politics that played on their sense of identity, right? And so I think that, you know, the GOP has been playing identity politics a really long time against the wishes of some people in their party. Um, and to that end, it's now so mixed up. It's hard to tell what's economic and what's, you know, racially motivated. Mm-hmm. We do look for example, just this week about the debt ceiling deal, which just a few years ago when Obama was in office, the tea party would have, you know, shut the government down or threatened to over. And now we don't even see a lot of concern. You know, how much of it's economic, how much of it is protecting these kind of Southern white cultural status. It's it's almost hard to see where one starts and one stops. And that's the point. That's the point of the long Southern strategy. Angie Maxwell, Todd Shields, the book is The Long Southern Strategy, How Chasing White Votes in the South Changed American Politics. Angie, Todd, I thank you both so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Those are Wonderful Thank you questions. very much. Have a great day. Thank you both.